Welcome back to part 5 of my retrospective on movies of the year 2009. We've covered so many thus far with comedies and dramas, horror, adventure, and romance. Now let's continue our cross-section as we pick up with September of that year. Well, the fun had to end sometime. The first film up for discussion is All About Steve, which is one of the rare Sandra Bullock movies that I hate. As noted in my discussion of the proposal, I do not care for Bullock's performances, but I generally like her movies. This is the exception to that rule. And keep in mind that I have seen Who Shot Patakango and The Hangmen, which were her two earliest films. All About Steve is about a single woman named Mary, who is very neurospicy, as we say. Her neurodivergent idioms make her a gifted creator of crosswords at the Sacramento Herald. While on a date, she quickly fixates on her beau for the evening, Steve, who works as a cameraman for on-site reports for cable news network CCN. After a series of twists and turns, Steve eventually comes to appreciate Mary with all her quirks, but she decides to let him loose, since it is unhealthy for her to follow him around. I think that a lot of factors lead me to hate this movie. Much like Adam, it tells a neurodivergent story without really giving us a voice. The actress playing Mary also needed to be someone younger, because instead it feels like Bullock is playing a caricature of autism. They also needed to flatly state her diagnosis at some point in the story, such as having one of her friends address it, and maybe have Mary say, Yeah, I know. I just don't like to talk about it. Had they let Mary's story be more authentic to the neurodivergent community's experiences, the film might be more treasured. Instead, it feels like a reverse gender adaptation of Bubble Boy. Despite my feelings, the film made more than double its budget, largely based on the promotional content noting that it was from the same producers as the immensely popular Miss Congeniality. Thankfully, online critics agree with me, as did Roger Ebert, naming it one of the top ten worst chick flicks. Most notably, Sandra Bullock, showing a lot of backbone, actually showed up and accepted her Razzie for Worst Actress, even giving out copies of the film to everyone if they promised to watch it and give it a chance. When one person thanked her for a copy, she quipped, You say that now? It is worth noting that she won the Academy Award for Best Actress the very next day for a different film that we'll be covering later. This might be one reason why I appreciate her work. She shows up to set, ready to work, and is willing to take a few punches if the work just isn't that good. Our next subject is the post-apocalyptic film Carriers. The only cast member you'll know from this movie is Chris Pine, fresh from playing Captain Kirk. It's a depressing story about four people living during a horrible outbreak of a pandemic. Two brothers try to evacuate with a girlfriend and another female friend to a family vacation home at Turtle Beach in Sarasota, Florida. Naturally, they come across a series of obstacles from the infected to survivalists. Weirdly, despite being set in Florida, filming was done in New Mexico and Texas, and then the finished film sat on the shelf for almost three years until Paramount decided to release it to capitalize on Chris Pine's star's glow after appearing in the Abrams Trek reboot. It made around $6 million worldwide, but less than $1 million domestically. 
The film has praise from online critics like Rotten Tomatoes, and following the COVID-19 outbreak, got a re-examination by Screen Rant. Having watched miniseries like The Stand and Station Eleven, I cannot help but feel a bit worn out by movies about plagues. Next, we have a Mike Judge project titled Extract, starring Jason Bateman, Mila Kunis, Kristen Wiig, Ben Affleck, and J.K. Simmons, with music by George Clinton. Of course, that is George S. Clinton, who wrote music for Austin Powers, not the George Clinton of the Parliament Funkadelic. The story follows Joel, the owner of a factory that makes extracts, who is gradually conned by a woman named Cindy after she hears about an accident at the factory that injured a worker. Joel starts to feel like Cindy is into him, and what follows is a story of drug use and infidelity. The resolution is pretty satisfying, but the film only made back its budget. Online critics gave it above-average scores, but print critics were divided, with the Washington Post's Dan Zak calling it most disappointing, and the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips calling it the funniest. With mixed responses like that, maybe we can extract that it's okay and worth a watch. Now we come to a little conceptual sci-fi called Gamer, about a world in which online players control participants like puppets. Wasn't there an episode of Sliders about this exact same situation? No, wait. In that one, the non-playable characters were being run by captives. And that's totally different from that one part of Ready Player One where someone might be held captive to do virtual stuff for the evil corporation. Anyway, by now you might be guessing my point is that the idea is tired and played out. Because it is. It is more expensive and time-consuming to keep people alive as video game characters than to just have sprites. Audiences would agree with me, as despite earning $43 million worldwide, this fell short of making back the $50 million budget. A lot of this can be attributed to the casting choices of Gerard Butler, fresh off the rom-com The Ugly Truth, Kira Sedgwick, Terry Crews, Ludacris, John Leguizamo, and Keith David. Online critics rated it poorly, while the New York Daily News deemed it Xerox of a Xerox, knocking off elements of The Matrix and Rollerball. Others noted that the movie seems to hate people who play video games, and while it's busy tutting commercialized violence, is, in itself, an action movie full of commercialized violence. I think it is best we move on and try to forget this one. Next, Shane Acker brings us a rather interesting story co-produced by Tim Burton. Nine is the story of a tiny robot with sackcloth for skin, and is based on a short that Acker made in a workshop at UCLA. As part of the promotion, they released the film on September 9th of that year, 9-9-09. The story is simple enough. A dictator orders a scientist to create a robot to advance progress, but the dictator turns it into a machine to create a robotic army. The machine, called Brain, is corrupted and callous, turning its weapons on humanity. The scientist utilizes alchemy to bring life to the robots that include nine, called Stitchpunks. Over the rest of the story, the various Stitchpunks uncover the history of the Brain and the talisman that the Brain is after. Nine helps save the souls of the other Stitch Punks who have fallen, each of them a piece of the soul of their inventor, 
and this leads to the brain being destroyed and life coming back to the world. This film features an exceptional cast. Elijah Wood, John C. Riley, Jennifer Connelly, Christopher Plummer, Crispin Glover, Martin Landau, and Fred Tatashiori. Pardon me if I'm mispronouncing that last one. This film has an above-average review with critics across the board, with Ebert comparing it to Miyazaki. This film was a minor hit, making back one and a half times its budget. Nine is dark, beautiful, and stirring, and I think it is worth a watch at least once in a while. Now we come to a remake of the 1956 film Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, with this version written and directed by Peter Hyams, and starring Jesse Metcalf, Amber Tamblin, and Michael Douglas. The story is updated to center around a district attorney in conspiracy with a police lieutenant to plant evidence, essentially supplanting justice and right to fair trial in the interests of locking up suspects, regardless to their innocence. The story even has a delightful twist at the end that will make your head spin. The film brings to mind the question of who will protect us from our protectors, akin to the Heston Wells classic, Touch of Evil, and sounds fascinating given all the revelations over the years around police forces. I'll add this to my personal watch list. Despite the exciting story and mystery, this movie failed to make back its budget with a box office takeaway of $4 million, but I think this is worth checking out. It's easy enough to find. Next up, we have an early favorite from auteur Tyler Perry in I Can Do Bad All By Myself. This is the story of a lounge singer whom Medea convinces to take custody of the singer's niece and nephews after they break into Medea's house, while their usual caretaker, their grandmother, is missing. It's a story of abuse, alcoholism, child labor, and unfair accusations. It features a wide gamut of actors in the cast, from famous singers to lesser-known talent, and as usual with Perry's work, tries to offer a voice to the African-American audience looking to have their stories told. Aside from the title, of course, the film has very little to do with Perry's play of the same name, which are often his proving grounds for developing the story ideas with audiences and help build funding for the project. It's not surprising, given all of this, that the film went on to make almost $52 million against a budget of $19 million. Online critics gave it above-average scores to even high scores, while print critics gave it a lot of credit overall, noting that the story tends to meander a bit, including having long musical numbers. But I suspect those are coming from Perry's stage shows, which often tend to have time with the audience and the author afterward, and sometimes feature singing of some R&B standards. Moving on, we get a remake of the 1982 slasher The House on Sorority Row. This time, simply titled Sorority Row. The only people you'll know from this movie are Carrie Fisher and Demi Moore and Bruce Willis's daughter, Rumor. Which isn't even spelled properly, I don't know where they get that spelling. Anyway, eight months after covering up the death of one of their sorority sisters, they are stalked and murdered the night of graduation. This one has a bit of fun mystery to it that keeps the audience guessing, so it's not surprising that it made more than double the budget back. It was filmed in Pittsburgh, which is a great place for location shooting in my opinion. Online critics did not rate this one highly, saying it was the same as the rest, but what was anyone expecting? 
It's a remake of an 80s slasher movie that itself was not that original. You are not watching it because it's original. You are watching it because you like slashers and the film features pretty young women. To me, this is like someone watching Star Crash Space Raiders or Battle Beyond the Stars and complaining that it had spaceships firing lasers going pew pew, or complaining that a romantic comedy was unrealistic, had way too many smiles, and too much hugging cuddles and kisses. Don't go to the rodeo if you don't like horses is all I'm saying. Me? I think this is worth a shot if you want to watch a typical slasher horror flick. Now we come to a comic book movie called Whiteout, about a U.S. Marshal, played by Kate Beckinsale, named Carrie Stetko, who is sucked into a murder mystery involving a masked killer trying to recover cargo from a lost Soviet plane that crashed in the 1950s. Oh, by the way, this takes place in Antarctica. Apparently, a major problem for the critics was the slow pacing, with some calling it formulaic and giving it very low scores online and in print. It made back around half its budget, but sounds like a great thriller. Fair to say that audiences probably did not know what to make of this one. Next, we have a film written and directed by Don Ruse, based on the book Love and Other Impossible Pursuits by Ayelet Waldman. Apologies for mispronunciation. Natalie Portman stars in The Other Woman. This is the story of a woman recovering from the unforeseen death of her infant daughter and the damaged relationship with her husband. It's a stirring story with a great ending, and you can really feel for the characters. Critics gave it middling reviews, and it did not perform well, but I could see it as a perfect chick flick for Girls' Night. On a lighter note, the forecast calls for cloudy with a chance of meatballs? That's right, in this CGI family film, Bill Hader plays a young inventor that makes a machine able to suck particles out of the air to produce any food. It's written and directed by the duo of Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, and features a terrific voice cast. This film was long awaited and made a tidy profit for Sony, assuring a sequel. Music for the film was done by one of my favorites, Akron native and Kent State alum Mark Mothersbaugh of the band Devo. Critics loved it online and in print. I think everyone saw this movie over the years, but if you haven't, it's based on a children's book of the same name, and that every kid loves, because they can just imagine their favorite foods dropping from the sky to eat. What kid doesn't love that idea? It also has a great message about women in science that isn't too ham-handed in its delivery, as it also tries to encourage anyone who is interested in science to pursue it. Next. A book by Kurt Eichenwald gives us The Informant, starring Matt Damon, directed by Steven Soderbergh and written by Scott Z. Burns. Featuring an excellent cast, this is the story of a man who blew the whistle on a price-fixing conspiracy that would have artificially raised the price on the amino acid and livestock feed additive lysine between five companies, which is a way of subtly price-gouging the meat, egg, and dairy industry to then profit from the costs being passed along to consumers out of pure avarice. The film just about made back its budget and was popular for its ironic and comedic tones. Online and print critics all gave it generally positive reviews, especially Roger Ebert, who gave it four out of four and praised the writing and direction for successfully telling a dual narrative. 
Moving on, let's look at Jennifer's body. The story of a teenager possessed by a demon that proceeds to slay the boys of the school and whose friends are the only ones who can stop her. This one was largely written off as playing up star Megan Fox's sex appeal, coming off of starring in the first two Transformers films, and having a hard time establishing a solid tone. It's still made back double its budget and has developed a cult following as a feminist film in light of the Me Too movement. At the time, Roger Ebert praised it as Twilight for Boys and denounced the idea of it being conventional fare. The writer herself, Diablo Cody, has said that the distributor and studio decided to market it to teenage boys who wanted to see Megan Fox, but realistically, when you know the story is about a girl that eats adolescent boys, why would boys want to see a movie that should, by all reasoning, make them terrified of Megan Fox? Anyway, I do not see this as comparable to Twilight, but it seems like an interesting enough horror movie. Next, Love Happens, a romantic drama starring Aaron Eckhart and Jennifer Aniston. This film is about Eckhart as therapist and author Dr. Burke Ryan, a widow who meets a floral designer named Eloise when he visits Seattle, Washington to give a presentation. Honestly, I love this as it is a romance that is centered on the man's journey as much as the woman's. So often in these cis and heteronormative romances, we get more of a focus on the female protagonist as an avatar for the intended audience, but the twists of this story have a lot of emotional growth for different male characters. Also, Eloise has to grow past her experiences of relationships not working out. The film made back double its budget, despite low scores from online critics. It just could not compete with some of the films I've already mentioned, though. And next up, Clive Owen plays a sports writer and husband to a jockey in The Boys Are Back. It's the story of the husband's losing Katie, the jockey, his wife, to terminal cancer, and having to raise Harry, who is from a previous marriage, and other son, Artie, without Katie. That's right, this is a family drama about a single dad with two sons, telling a story not often told in cinema, but that is needed now more than ever with many people trying to denounce sensitive, nurturing men as weak. It got good reviews from online critics, noting that the melodrama avoids becoming too sappy. So, if you want to see an engaging story about love for men for their children, consider giving this one a watch. Moving on from loving and nurturing men to brief interviews with hideous men. The comedy drama directed by John Krasinski for the first time in the director's chair. This is based on a collection of short stories by David Foster Wallace. In the film, Sarah Quinn is a grad student who interviews men. She is coping with a recent breakup as she hears all the twisted details of their lives. This awakens her to the dark side underlying our relationships, and she becomes attuned to this side of things as she has to figure out what to do with this knowledge. Krasinski also plays a bit in front of the camera as one of the subjects, alongside actors like Will Arnett, Christopher Maloney, Frankie Faison, Will Forte, and about a dozen others. It was filmed around the New York City area, and was given middling responses from critics. It really made no money, but seems like a provocative film for the topic of relationships and gender in a heteronormative cis society. Now for a biopic. We get the drama Coco Before Chanel, starring Audrey Tatou, best known for the title character of Amélie, co-written and directed by Anne Fontaine, along with co-writer Camille Fontaine. 
and based on Edmund Charroux's Chanel and Her World. There is not a lot to say, as it is a biopic, and most historical movies are evaluated more for accuracy to the subject, and otherwise may be judged on their ability to tell the story well. It raked in a tidy sum of more than double the budget, while Ebert appreciated not softening the hard edges of the subject's early years. Online critics gave the film above-average scores. Most notably, it won awards for music and costumes, and was nominated in many other categories. Now we come to another remake in a season of remakes, reboots, and so on. Fame is based on the 1980 film about a performing arts high school in New York City. The only cast member to return is Debbie Allen, who was in both the film and the television series. The school functions as a magnet school for the most talented teen performers in the city. The film follows a group of students from freshman year to graduation. Ebert panned it, asking why bother remaking the original if you did not understand it. Most critics agreed that this fame would not live forever. For an $18 million budget, it made back over $77 million on nostalgia and brand recognition. To paraphrase Jay Sherman, if someone is making a remake of a classic, rent the classic! Well, earlier this season we had The Other Woman, so it seems only fair that late September gave us The Other Man, starring Liam Neeson, Antonio Banderas, and Laura Linney. This was directed by Richard Eyre and co-written by Eyre with Charles Wood and the original short story's author, Bernard Schlink. It's the story of a widowed husband who, in his grief, discovers that his late wife had an affair. He tracks down her lover, and you will just have to see the film to find out. However, I will say that the film has a rather powerful ending that I find deeply satisfying. Critics gave the film a low score and deemed it talky, witless, and tension-free. It utterly tanked at the box office, but I think that is because people were not sure what to make of the story by the end. Next, we have Pandorum. Another box office bomb, this one co-produced by Paul W.S. Anderson. It's a story about a handful of people who awaken aboard a massive space arc called Elysium, another word for heaven, which is carrying 60,000 people to a world called Tanis, which comes from the name of a portage city in Egypt that lay between the Mediterranean and the Red Seas. As their clouded memories leave them confused, they explore the massive ship, encountering mutants and discovering truths about one another and their ship's mission. I remember watching it and hating it, finding it utterly confusing. The reason for that is because it was a mishmash of two screenplays. One about a prison ship named Pandorum that is overrun by escaped prisoners turned cannibals, and another about four astronauts aboard a colony ship who suffer from memory loss. I refuse to call it amnesia, because apparently that's actually something else. Online critics panned it with low scores, and only the magazines SFX and Film Ireland had anything good to say about it. If you like this movie, fine, but if you have yet to see it, give it a pass. Now we come to one of my least favorite genres of films, found footage, with the first in a franchise, Paranormal Activity, directed by Oren Pelly and co-written by Pelly with Jason Bloom and Steven Schneider. 
The film basically tries to redo what the Blair Witch Project did a decade earlier, but using fixed cameras and modest special effects. Most of the horror in this movie comes from jump scares as the audience tries to fill in what they think happened. It cost a couple hundred grand to make and banked $193 million. Critics rated it highly, including Ebert, and I cannot stand found footage films. I have given them a chance and found them lacking. Moving on, next we have Surrogates, based on a story by Robert Venditti. Okay, so imagine if The Sims was real life, where you control a robot doppelganger, and then someone was murdered and you have to solve it. The more I think about it, the more this sounds like a couple of later season episodes of Sliders. Anyway, it has an okay plot, great cast, and good special effects. It made $122 million against an $80 million budget, making this a modest success for Touchstone. It got low to middling scores from critics, noting it was rather cliched writing, and I have to agree. You know exactly how it will end, because you know the premise is against the natural order, which is that a person should go outside and live your life for real, instead of letting a puppet do it for you. Last for the month of September is Trailer Park Boys Countdown to Liquor Day a Canadian mockumentary based on the Canadian TV series and the sequel to the 2006 Trailer Park Boys film. The boys are released from prison and immediately start planning to do more crime. From there, the film is just hijinks. Critics had differing opinions on the film, but the box office says otherwise, making back less than half the $6,600,000 budget. I've never seen the show or the movies, but this does not sound appealing to me. I'm sure it was more for the show's avid fans. That wraps up part five. I'll see you next time as we wrap up the year 2009 in the next two parts with a look at the movies of autumn and winter of that year. <laughs>